China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Joseph Turrigian, an assistant professor at the School of International Service at American University. Today we'll be discussing his new paper, You Don't Know Khrushchev Well, the ouster of the Soviet leader as a challenge to recent scholarship on authoritarian politics, which was just published in the Journal of Cold War Studies. Joseph, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start out by asking if you could describe a bit the evolution of your interest in elite politics. How did you become interested broadly in elite politics and in, in graduate school when you began focusing more on, on China, Russia, North Korea? What, what led you on that path? When I started my PhD program, I thought I would write a very typical dissertation on international relations theory, rising powers. But then I took a class with Roderick McFarquhar that was designed brilliantly. Every single week, we read a different book that was about a different topic in Chinese politics since 1949. And it seemed to me that whenever there was uh, a journalist, a think tanker, uh, a policymaker uh, in the room, uh, it was still uh, Roderick McFarquhar who had the most interesting things to say about whatever the subject was. And I thought to myself, what is it about him that gives him this power? And I think that his deep dive into these moments in Chinese history just gave him a powerful sense of how things work that allowed him to ask whether things actually made sense when people made uh, conjectures about what was going on uh, within China at any particular moment. But I also noticed that a lot of people weren't doing the kind of research that he and uh, Fred Tevis, Warren Sun, and Ezra Vogel uh, had been doing for decades. Uh, I think part of that uh, had to do with trends uh, in disciplines, but I saw a niche there that uh, I saw wasn't getting filled uh, that I thought was really, really, really interesting that also was possible because at least at that time, it was extraordinary the kind of documents and material and interviews that you could do on Chinese politics. We're going to dive into the substance of this paper in a, in a minute, but I thought it might be helpful if you could offer some general analysis on what are we, and, and by we, I mean those of us, you know, sort of analysts of, of Chinese politics or authoritarian politics more broadly, what are we getting wrong about elite politics? You, you've written quite a bit, some provocations and, and even in, in private, you know, emails you and I've had and, and edits you've, you've provided on papers, I noticed that you often find, you know, uh, limitations in some of the general framings or heuristics that I think many are using to think about elite politics, especially contentious politics, you know, up to and in, in including coups and leadership challenges. So if I could just ask you to kind of summarize, what do you find lacking in some of the analysis that you see out there? And, and when I say some of what we actually know is you, you really are meeting me. <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, I think that the stuff that you do is really great. Uh, and I'm not just saying that. And, you know, when it comes to elite politics, there's a paper that I recommend uh, written by Frederick Tevis, who I just mentioned about, you know, the black box of elite politics in China, where he talks about how observers who were writing about Chinese politics at the time, we now know based on material that has come out later, didn't get it quite right. But it's not because these people were dumb. It's not because these people necessarily had an agenda. It's because these systems are inherently misinformation factories. 
And what's fascinating and so challenging is that even when you are going back and looking at new material, even when you are looking at primary sources when you can get them, it's actually quite stunning how often people, even at the very top of the elite, were misreading signals, were misreading cues, didn't know what was going on. And so they're facing these challenges, but then for people on the outside, we're trying to essentially drink a milkshake with a straw because those people who are at the top are feeding information out that is purpose for a particular way. So for example, very often we see Chinese politics as a history of competing factions, competing lines, uh, but that's an artifact of how the winner in these struggles portrays the nature of that contest, not necessarily exactly uh, what was going on at the time. So one thing that people like to do is read people's daily and try to tease out whether or not there are power struggles going on. But one interesting quote that I have in the Khrushchev paper, which we'll talk about, uh, is from this letter I found that Molotov, who was uh, removed from the leadership by Khrushchev in 1957, wrote. He said, uh, Molotov in this letter, uh, where in which materials after 1957 and all the way up to October 1964 can be found even the slightest opposition to Khrushchev? There is nothing on a single one of the thousands of pages published over all these years from the Central Committee plenums, party congresses, dozens and hundreds of meetings at the highest level of both the all-union and republic scale. So this idea that we can look to tea leaves and see resistance to uh, someone like Xi Jinping, I think is, is, is problematic. That doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't policy debates going on, but to assume that there are signs of resistance to Xi Jinping that we can see that he cannot, I think doesn't quite make sense. And then of course, finally, so much of this is personality. So much of this is what's going on at specific meetings or um, behind closed doors or at, uh, at meetings at the dacha. And just whether or not people get along and whether someone is dictatorial or not, those things are exceptionally hard for outsiders to get a read on. Yeah, I mean, so maybe something we can circle back to at the end of this is how do we think about some possible tools to even recognizing limitations, uh, as you say, of, of information, disinformation, and just structural opacity? How do we avoid sort of analytical nihilism of just throwing up our hands and saying, well, you know, we can't say anything about it? That's why I think Roderick McFarquhar was such an inspiration to me, which was he had a sense for how things worked, right? Uh, it, he wasn't particularly involved in the day-to-day -day of which TIFA, right? Which expression might have had a minor change from last week compared to this week. But the, the broadness of his perspective and the way that he could think about these things, I, I think, was useful. Let's get into the paper because I think we actually might yeah, through the course of the you know the rest of the discussion, might I, I certainly I will see some of your analysis, which we can help bring to bear as we think about other opaque leadership systems, such as the one under Xi Jinping right now. So the the paper is looking at how Khrushchev fell from power, but of course also there's an interesting discussion about how Khrushchev came to power in the first place. But a bulk of the focus is thinking about October 1964 and, and how he was ousted. I wonder if you could start with just a Cliff Notes version of the events surrounding Khrushchev's fall, both specifically, but also if you could just wrap that in a little bit historical context of, of where was the Soviet Union um, and where was Khrushchev in the early to mid 1960s? So Khrushchev's deputies in their memoirs talk about how he changed, especially after 1957 when he pushed out the old guard. They talk about how he became increasingly dictatorial, uh, how he stopped listening to other people's views. Now, he certainly made mistakes, and those mistakes were severe, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis. But really, the 
planning to remove him only began in 1964. And that was because they thought Khrushchev was coming for him. So it wasn't a story of Khrushchev's mistakes or incompetence or unpopular policies, although those made those the purge possible. It was primarily them trying to, to fight for their own skins. And the reason I thought it was meaningful to write about this topic is the growing authoritarianism throughout the world, China and Russia trying to shape public opinion more in favor of autocracies, the new sources that became available on this particular incident. Uh, it's one of the most important moments in the history of one of the world's greatest political experiments, the Soviet Union. And it's one of the only times that the leader of a specifically Leninist uh, regime was removed from power. But also the Khrushchev era has been used by political scientists uh, very heavily uh, to make theoretical points about the nature of authoritarian regimes. So in that sense, it, it deserves study as well. I'd love to hear a little bit of actual specifics on what what did it look like? How how was Khrushchev removed from power? If you can kind of put us in, in some of the halls of power, what, what does it mean actually to remove someone from power? Mm. What did it look like? Is this kind of a gang of four-like moment or, mm. or something else? And is this an actual moment in time when a decision is made? Or is this kind of a slow building process that sort of crescendos? Yeah, that's a great question. So sometimes political scientists like to talk about politics as a kind of machine where you put in certain inputs and you get certain outputs. But what's so fascinating about the story of Khrushchev's fall is how contingent it was. And that if certain things at certain times that is a counterfactual very easily could have gone, could have gone in one direction or the other, Khrushchev's defeat wasn't necessarily inevitable, right? So Brezhnev very clearly believed that it was still possible even after the coup began, would be able to come out uh, victorious, right? So, for example, Khrushchev was in the South, and the Presidium, which is what the Politburo was called at the time, summoned him back with the intention of uh, removing him from power. So Khrushchev goes to these meetings, and uh, the head of the KGB is worried that Khrushchev supporters within the Central Committee are going to rally, and that if there isn't a quick enough resolution to the move against him that there was still some chance that Khrushchev would be able to emerge victorious, right? Uh, ultimately, Khrushchev decided not to contest, uh, which raises lots of interesting questions as to why. People always talk about leaders in authoritarian regimes as you know maximizers of power and that kind of thing. But I think the best hypothesis based on the evidence is that Khrushchev didn't see a lot of policy differences with these people who were trying to remove him. Um, and I think he also believed that he would have had to do a lot to turn things around that would not have been good for the regime, would not have been good for the party. And he decided to um, to not contest as hardly as he could have, in which ultimately he might have had a chance to emerge victorious. Although, again, because of these contingencies, not necessarily absolute sure thing. Can I just ask, and again, I say this as both someone who finds this really interesting and also knows very little about this. So this is called a coup because there was not a, a use of the de jure formalized process for shifting out the general secretary? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So one of the things that I argue is that Leninist regimes are not as institutionalized as many people credit them to be, which means whether it's a coup or not is irrelevant to the extent that the institutions are so inherently ambiguous Actually saying whether or not it's a coup is problematic, even according to um, the Soviets' own views of their both formal and informal rules. 
But if you do look at how the rules were supposed to work, at least written on paper, the plotters did not exactly adhere to the way that the party would expect them to because they didn't confront Khrushchev about his problems in a so-called inner democratic way. They just decided to remove him. And there has been talk about the role of the Central Committee, right, which is the bigger body, more authoritative body, which sits below um, the Presidium. And this was not a case of them activating the Central Committee. It was act- it was in a sense a sort of double coup where they wanted to remove Khrushchev from power, but also not give the Central Committee enough space to ask too many questions or even more dangerously resist this uh, move against Khrushchev. So there was a lot of maneuver here that was going on. Uh, so one way of describing it is that it's essentially, it's a knife fight, but it's a knife fight with weird rules as well, right? Where you want to win, but you also don't want to go so obviously beyond what the rules say. So that's why Brezhnev considered simply arresting him, may even have considered killing Khrushchev, but then decided that, you know, the reputational costs for the party and for him wouldn't have been worth the even more like chance that it would be, you know, a decisive victory for the plotters. If I may, I wanted to roam around this horizontally for a minute because I hadn't thought of this till you were just talking about even if we're thinking about China today or historically in China and certainly in the in the context of the Soviet Union, I think it's easy to think about one extreme what clearly a coup would look like, especially if we're thinking about the use of force to physically remove someone and detain them. But in the more quote unquote normal operations of leadership politics, does feel like it's very, very fuzzy to the extent, I mean, for example, is Xi Jinping, the formalized process by which Xi Jinping would be voted into power at the upcoming 20th Party Congress, of course, is not the process by which Xi Jinping will continue on in power, right? That is the, the veneer of it. So if we accept, you, you know, you're, you and, and, you know, I think there's a lot of good consensus now, especially Xi Jinping has helped confirm this, that the, a lot of these rules for succession or elite politics was far, far less institutionalized than I think many gave credit for. How should we think about identifying the normal operations of these versus the abnormal, given that this is all within a non-institutionalized context? Because if it's hard to define something as a coup outside of very, very clear examples of, again, the use of physical coercion or violence to wrench someone from power. It must make it hard, right, for us to be able to externally look at this and be able to understand, are we, are we seeing a sort of a normal operation of power or something emerging which might indicate that there could be a sudden shift, right? I'm not sure that's a particularly clear question, but I was just intrigued by your idea of like, it's even hard to say it's a coup per se. It's not like there's a firm bed of clearly articulated rules by which everyone already follows and therefore Mm -hmm. a deviation or a violation of those rules is abnormal. In fact, the whole Mm -hmm. thing is a little bit of a blurry gray zone. So the fact that a group of senior leaders came to a decision that they wanted to make a change of leadership and Khrushchev acceded to that without any resort to physical violence in some ways feels to me like a, a fairly orderly way to transition power in an authoritarian political system that has non-institutionalized rules of succession. But I may be over-egging that point. No, I think that's a great question, actually. So a few responses with regards to this question of who would see it coming? What would those signals look like? Theoretically, if institutions were working well and there was a normal politics of give and take, you could see, or at least people within the elite could see, something coming, right? 
But I think that at least with regards to Khrushchev, uh, Khrushchev was dictatorial. He was mean. He even threatened to shove a memo up someone's nose. But when you would go to parties at the dacha, they were obsequious towards Khrushchev, right? And one of the key powers that Khrushchev had was that at any given moment, he could remove whoever he wanted to, right? So it's not this kind of thing where you make a threat against the leader and then the leader either you know backs down or doesn't. Making a threat is a good way of, or even confronting them about pathologies and what they're doing, uh, it's less likely that you're going to create to a more healthy political debate. It's more likely that you're going to be removed from power. The other thing to remember is that precisely because these rules of who gets to make what decision are somewhat vague, although there are party rules that you know suggest how things would be seen, because it really matters whether a decision is made in the Politburo Standing Committee, the Politburo, or the Central Committee, that's why these power struggles are such a game of maneuver, right? And we see throughout both Chinese and Soviet history, and this I talk about in my forthcoming book a lot, it's like whether or not you can cut somebody off from being able to activate those other bodies, who has the advantage in which body, how the power struggle is presented to which body at what time, those games of maneuver are really, really absolutely crucial. One last thing I also want to say about this is, even though you want to win, you want to portray your victory as being legitimate as possible, which puts some some of a cap on what you may be able to do. But also, it limits your ability to move against the top leader because of charges of factionalism, right? So one of the charges against the group that wanted to remove Khrushchev from power in 1957 is that they were in the middle of a Cold War, right? So if you go after the top leader and you are rallying people behind closed doors, people can see how that has destabilizing implications, which I think is something that works to the benefit of the top leader as well. Can I ask a logistical question about building a coalition to make a move against a leader, either in the case of Khrushchev or in some of your other studies of, of North Korea or China? Are there any generalized rules of successful logistics of organizing a coalition? Obviously, um, one of the sort of throwaway lines is just how how hard it is to do that. I think especially thinking about today, given surveillance technologies, which you know a, a dictator would have. But I would imagine even in, in 1964, you know, there's an element of, obviously an extreme element of risk and trust you are making when you tap someone on the shoulder and begin to probe what their genuine feelings are about a leader. And how do you begin to signal that you'd like to alter the status quo without initially saying that, given that you would open yourself up to, you know, potential, you know, defection or, or tattling. But what do we know about how that process works? Is it just a sequential snowballing of where, you know, it begins with one, then goes to two, then goes to four kind of exponential snowballing? Is there something else that you figured out? So I don't love this term coalition because it implies that power struggles are a popularity contest. And I don't think that's true in Leninist regimes for several reasons. The first is because, as I was saying earlier, it's such a game of maneuver, right? It depends on whether it's Politburo or the Central Committee that makes the decision, which means that it's not one single selectorate and you're trying to get a majority within it. It's also how the rules are activated and who has the initiative, who can have a fait accompli, who can move first. So you ask, like, what is one of the things that makes you successful? If you can move fast and you can prevent the other person from calling for a different interpretation of the rules that would be more favorable to them, then you're in good shape. But also if rules are ambiguous, then 
who decides which interpretation of the rules is right gets down to who controls the gun, who has who can apply force. So what's so interesting is when people were, you know, teasing out positions within the elite about the removal of Khrushchev, at least three people asked before they gave an answer, what's the position of the military? What's the position of the KGB? And in fact, Brezhnev was not in the Soviet Union on the on the eve of the coup, and it doesn't look like he was prepared to go back until the defense minister, Malinovsky, signified that he would not be involved or at least would imply approval uh, for the coup, right? Okay, so take out the word coalition. I, d- I didn't mean that in a normative sense. I, so... How do you build a ad hoc group to make a move against a leader where at the initial stages, you're not sure who is ultimately going to be in the group and you have to make sort of, you have to take some risky moves to suss out, you know, is Joseph with me or against me if we, if we go after, you know, if we go after Khrushchev, what, what do we know about how that process occurs? Is that on, is that on the sidelines of meetings Are these secret late night convenings? What does that look like? Well, it certainly wouldn't take place at presidium meetings or central committee meetings, right? Sometimes it may be possible at very limited levels to notice the way that somebody phrases something that you can tease out how they really feel about it. Uh, If you're seeing Khrushchev humiliating other people, that may give you a sense that it would be appropriate for you to approach them. Uh, A lot of it is personal relationships and how well you know someone. But what's interesting about the Khrushchev case is word got out to Khrushchev. He heard rumors of preparations to move against him, but he didn't believe them because the people were so different and because he felt that his position was so secure. So counterintuitively, his faith in his own position actually blinded him to the possibility because it was so unlikely that there was a plot coming for him. One of the things you write about in the paper is the the sort of leader-friendly element of a Marxist-Leninist system. And so this gets to a point about, I think, many of us kind of have this blobbish idea of authoritarian leaders, right? Where, and we apply a, a set of, you know, heuristics or rules to how these operate. So the idea of the selectorate within a authoritarian system. And I think one of the points you make often is distinguishing regime types because that would indicate a, a different way of operating, a different set of rules, a different set of constraints, different set of incentives. And so there's something unique about a Marxist-Leninist system versus a you know completely different personalized dictatorship in Africa, for example. So I wonder if you could unpack this idea of Marxist-Leninist systems as leader-friendly. What, what, what does that mean and, and, and how does that bear on the, the Khrushchev case? With regards to the question of unique characteristics of a Leninist system, as I was saying before, they aren't really popularity contests, right? And Khrushchev had a lot of tools that allowed him to dominate other members in the elite. Uh, His ouster was much more dependent on contingent factors than political science narratives about unpopular policies or incompetence naturally leading to removal would suggest. For example, the individual who read the so-called administrativny adyal, the administrative division, uh, which was a sort of euphemism for basically the military, the bureaucracy, and the political police. He was a big Khrushchev supporter, but had a stroke. Khrushchev also apparently was bringing more supporters back into the leadership, but just didn't have enough time to do it. The idea that institutions facilitated a move against Khrushchev is also problematic, right? And this is important because people talk about Leninist systems uh, as being more institutionalized. But in fact, institutions worked against the plotters. Norms against factionalism were very powerful. 
Uh, the plotters did not use established party rules or institutions to engineer Khrushchev's removal. Uh, it was a sort of double coup against both him and the Central Committee, as, as I was saying. It was a game of maneuver in an environment with ambiguous rules. And so why was Khrushchev so powerful? Well, first, everyone was implicated in his decision-making. One of the reasons it was also a coup against the Central Committee is because they were afraid that people would ask, well, why did you let it get this far? You know, is it just about personality? Uh, why are you going to be the person to replace Khrushchev and not somebody else? Khrushchev used his organizational tools to set deputies against each other. He would have a first deputy and then a second deputy that didn't like each other. Uh, he often, if he suspected even the slightest treachery, would remove someone immediately. He could decide when and how meetings were held. Obviously not you know, the presidium meeting that removed him, but his detractors hated that he would have these ad hoc sessions that he just packed and held at whatever time was most beneficial to him. And also he inculcated um, strong personal relationships with the KGB and military. So powerful, in fact, that he was quite shocked that they decided to go along with the plotters. I want to get through a few more questions here. We're kind of bumping up against time, but there's a lot to get into in this really rich paper. But if I could maybe just wrench this discussion and now kind of bring it up to the present or, or you know, take some of this and apply a comparative lens. I mean, one question I wanted to ask you is you you conclude the paper with, a, with I think, a suggestion or a statement that labels such as kind of weak you know, and powerful are not particularly helpful. It's more complicated than that. I wonder if you could apply that to how we're thinking about, you know, contemporary authoritarian politics and specifically, you know, could I ask you to, to maybe make a critique of the dominant way that we would think about Xi Jinping, for example? Why can't I make a declarative conclusion that Xi Jinping is a, you know, extraordinarily powerful leader? Is it because there's a lot I don't know behind the scenes that we may not know until the archives are, are out there? And, and to tie this back to a point you made earlier, is it because, for example, I might be biasing or overweighting how much he shows up in the People's Daily or you know, how many times he's mentioned in the history resolution? Just I wonder if you could just critique that for a minute. So political scientists use these dichotomous variables, right, like strong or weak to compare and contrast leaders, to tease out variation, uh, look at patterns. But I think that type of research is valuable. But I do the kind of research that I do that was inspired, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, by Roderick McFarquhar, because I think that exhaustive and rigorous investigations into very specific moments can help you conceptualize the environment in which these leaders find themselves and, and look at possibilities as opposed to inevitabilities that you would see in a cross-case treatment. And I think that really, if details really matter, that if you get them wrong, you get everything wrong, especially when it comes to elite politics, which are so extraordinarily based on personalities and uh, contingencies. So I think it makes, it's more meaningful to talk about how power functions in different ways at different times than to use labels like strong or weak. And to give an example, people always talk about Xi and Deng as... Uh, a meaningful comparison to make. And some people talk about Xi as being even more powerful than Deng, uh, as Xi giving up on the institutional guardrails that Deng had established. And I think that that obscures more than it illuminates. So Deng was extraordinarily powerful. I don't think that he cared about institutions in the ways that people think he did. And we can talk about how this narrative appeared. But Deng 
was the core. He believed that the party only functioned with a core. He told Zhao Ziyang that, look how the Soviet Union just held a, a very quick meeting and they invaded Afghanistan. Uh, the United States could never do something like that. They have to talk about it. You know, when I talk to people in the United States, I never know who gets to make a decision because there are three different governments. But at the same time, Deng liked to have the final authority making decision, but he liked to be not at the front line, right? He wasn't running a dozen different committees. He wasn't running policy at every moment. He didn't have to worry about that kind of thing because his relationship with the military, but more importantly, his prestige as a revolutionary leader made his position paramount, right? Whereas Xi Jinping, he's obviously an extraordinarily powerful leader, but he doesn't have that revolutionary cachet that Deng did. So when we talk about why are we seeing Xi Jinping's name in the paper so much, well, you know, looking at history allows you to think about how the same set of evidence could allow you to make different hypotheses. You could say, well, his name is in the paper a lot because he's powerful, which is true, but he also may feel a need to do that in a way that Deng did not, precisely because he doesn't have the kind of natural authority that Deng enjoyed, right? But also, for Xi Jinping today, the first thing we should keep in mind is that we're still changing our views on crucial moments in Soviet politics, like the removal of Khrushchev, which happened uh, 58 years ago. But, but ultimately, you know, if we look to the past and if continuities with the past are strong, you know, what does that say about Xi Jinping? Well, it would say, if continuities are strong, that he's not in a popularity contest, won't automatically get removed if he makes mistakes or introduces unpopular policies. He would only be defeated with a lot of luck. Before that, he would do pretty much almost anything that he wanted. I think the most likely challenge to Xi would be a group of people that thought that Xi was planning to move against them anyway, and even then they would face a tough challenge, right? And, you know, Khrushchev went out, you know, when he saw what the situation looked like, but Xi Jinping very explicitly, uh, shortly after he came to power, gave this famous speech where he said, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed because there was no one man enough to come out and use violence to resolve the situation, which is a way of Xi Jinping saying, you know, I know that if two cores, two headquarters, whatever you want to call them, appear within the party, it's not about me. It's about the state. And I will make sure that I come out on top. Joseph, I, I had a bunch more questions, but in, in the interest of the attention spans and uh, to try to keep this a half hour, I'm afraid I'm going to end it there. But this is, um, I just really, I really recommend everyone go read the paper, even if you're not studying or think you need to study Soviet history what I found so enlightening about it was the tools that you uh, illuminate, which I think are going to be you know, increasingly imperative for trying to understand and navigate China's political system as we you know, sort of through a glass darkly try to understand China. And also, I appreciate your work and your constant provocations as a reminder of the need of, for, for humility, contingency, and personality you know, as we try to think about these systems, because we both need to make judgments about these because this is happening in real time. And, you know, there's not the ability to wait 50 years for the archives to open to make judgments about the intentions, you know, and actions and behavior. But on the same hand, you know, I think being relatively circumspect in this, the strength of conviction in these judgments is also required because there's just so many known unknowns and unknown unknowns about how they operate. So um, enjoy this paper so much. Um, look forward to your forthcoming books, plural, which again are going to provide some really important windows and insights into how these systems operate. So Joseph, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thanks. I really enjoyed the conversation. Good. 
Hey listeners, Greg Poling here, director of the Southeast Asia Program and the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. Just wanted to let you know that we're launching a new podcast on Thursday, April 14th, called Southeast Asia Radio. I'll be joined by my good friend and co-host, the brilliant Alina Noor, Director of Political and Security Affairs at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Hi, everybody. Along with Simon Tran-Hudas and other members of the CSIS Southeast Asia team. Hi. Every two weeks, we'll highlight the most important news from the region and dive into candid conversations with leading voices on Southeast Asia and U.S. foreign policy. We'll cover everything you want to know about Southeast Asia. Geopolitics in the region, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, democracy and human rights, nothing is off limits. So join us for Southeast Asia Radio, April 14th, wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 